Hello everyone, welcome to the Oxford Martin School. My name is Charles Godfrey and I'm the director here. And I'm going to be introducing the speaker, but the um, questions will be, uh, will be organized by Andrew Thompson. <coughs> Andrew, who used to be head of the Arts and Humanities Research Council, has for the last uh, four years been professor of global imperial history at Oxford. And within the Oxford Martin School, he runs a program on changing global order and is very interested in the uh, topic this afternoon. Um, I'd also like to welcome Mark Wolpert, who is here. Mark has run everything. The Wellcome Trust was government chief scientific advisor and ran UKRI as well. And it's particularly nice to have you here just after uh, Angela McLean, who has done a lot of work with the Martin School, has been appointed your successor but one. Um, we will, um, the talk is webcast, and those of you who are online, you will see that there's the opportunity to ask questions. And something that's very helpful for us is you can vote on questions as well to help us prioritize those to ask. So with no further ado, let me come to our speaker this afternoon, Eve Dacor. Uh, Eve is Swiss and went to the University of uh, Geneva. Uh, and after doing things in the media, joined the um, International Committee of the Red Cross, I think in 1992 and worked in the field in some of the most challenging uh, environments, challenging um, areas uh, imaginable. Uh, Eve became Director General of the International Committee of the Red Cross and held that position for 10 years from 2010 to 2020. And Eve is a major thinker about the role of international um, organizations around humanitarianism, around uh, urban, urbanization. And Eve's talk this afternoon is, can international humanitarian organizations adapt to face the challenges of this century? Eve, welcome to the Martin School. I'm very pleased to be, uh, to be with, uh, with all of you. Thank you very much for the introduction, Charles. Um, I must maybe just put two elements of context to start with. You just mentioned, uh, I will talk about humanitarian, I will talk about mainly international humanitarian, I would say professional. Uh, and of course, my two elements of context are the following one. A, I'm coming with one perspective, and this perspective can be challenged. There's a lot of different perspective about humanitarian organization, about what is happening. And of course, it is tainted by the fact that I've spent a lot of time at the International, International Committee of the Red Cross, work a lot in different contexts, so I've been exposed to uh, the limits of humanitarian organization, to the limit of what we do, and of course I've been also able somewhat to look at some of the power of what we're able to do. So that's one element, and I think the other element is uh, I've been right now informed a lot by the work that we've done together with you, Andrew Thompson, uh, uh, and at, the, uh, at all the work that's, that has been done uh, when it comes to uh, this uh, um, project, research project at Nuffield, uh, INGO and the Long Humanitarian Action, and I think it's in the Long Humanitarian Century. And I think it was useful for me to be able to, to uh, you know, challenge my own assumptions around what is happening and to ask ourselves uh, uh, what we want to do as, a, as an organization. So that's the two elements of context I will just to, to put. Um, so what I would like to be able to do is, uh, you mentioned that, Charles. I think when we talk about humanitarian organization, especially when they are international, uh, I think we need to ask ourselves, do they have the ability to continue to adapt? 
if you think about humanitarian organization, I'm really looking at the modern time, let's say, since, let's say, 40 years, and we can have a long discussions about when the modern time started. Uh, I mean, it's a question of, of course, vulnerabilities, it's a question of power, it's a question of mobilization, but it's also a question of, of adaptation. And, and I think if you look at the last 40 years, I mean, humanitarian organization had to adapt themselves uh, to a lot of different uh, stakeholders, different situations. And I think the real question we should ask ourselves is, are humanitarian organizations still able to adapt themselves? And my response will, will say, no. That's it, that's the end. No, don't worry. Uh, my response is, yes, they might be able to adapt, and, and I'll challenge that a little bit, but I think if, they want, if we want to continue to be relevant, they need to adapt in specific situation, in specific field. We can't talk about adaptation as such. And that's what I would like to be able to do that. But first, let me, and we could take 20 different key factors, but I would like to start with five key factors or key elements that are really, I think so, have shaped and will, will continue to shape humanitarian organization uh, when it comes to their own ability to operate uh, in the world. And, and I, I say, really look at these five ones because they, I really think they, they are important and will continue to be important. The first one is about digitalization and people. So we're all living in a world where we're all thinking about digitalization, the impact on digitalization, what it means on, to all of us. I think as a tendency, what I look at international organization, especially international NGOs, international organizations that are dealing with humanitarian, what I see is they have a tendency to look at processes, to look at data, big data, ERPs, and that's the way they look at digitalization. That's the way they experience also digitalization. And it's not only true for humanitarian, it's very true also for academic, corporate world. And I would say they are somewhat missing the fact that it's first and foremost about people. And that what is happening when we talk about digitalization is that people, including people affected by war, by natural disaster, are absolutely already moved to another generation. I was just again recently in Nairobi, and I was again amazed just to look at East Africa. I mean, what has happened how much you have mobile phone everywhere in every single household. And what it means, not just that it's present, but it means, for example, today you can exchange money in a much more simple way without banking accounts, for example, than even 10 years ago. So today, just a phone number, a SIM card, and you're able to exchange money. But it is deeply changing the way people interact among themselves, the people think about it. And that is still some, somewhere where, in fact, I would say international NGOs, international organization, internet system find difficult to grasp what it means. Including, by the way, in the way they are looking and counting. If you just think the fact that today people are able to exchange money in a very easy way, you can't think humanitarian actions without thinking also about remittance, remittances and the impact it has, right? Or today, the way humanitarian action is somewhat described in terms of money, they will say, oh, you mentioned actions, if I look at figures, is something around $30 billion. But that's a very static number, right? Where if you compare that to remittances, for example, that is 620 millions around the world, you have a very different element. So it tells you something about the fact that when we think about digitalization, when we think about people, it's still very static. So I think that's the first element. Think about digitalization and people, and that will create a different dynamic. The second point, and it's not a surprise, and I see Valerie, hi Valerie, so happy to see you. Uh, the second point is about sovereignty. And we've seen that, that's nothing, nothing surprising, but sovereignty is 
confirmed, I would say for me, at the almost ultimate norm in the international uh, system right now. Uh, and it will continue to be so. And we've seen that uh, Russia, Ukraine, crisis and war is absolutely for me an illustration of that, but it's not just an illustration. We've seen that in every single context where you can do whatever you want as a country, very clearly, because you're sovereign. And sovereign has become something central. Look at the Security Council. It's not just a question of sovereignty, but it's also a question of sovereignty around that. And I don't think it will change. And what it means, it means that the framework in which humanitarian organization operating, including international public law, international humanitarian law, is a framework that is very weakened, not so much in terms of norm, but in terms of implementation, in terms of agreeing this is a common grammar. Because that's what nation states should be able to do, is to agree, given they are competing each other, that we have a common grammar. This common grammar is not really applied. So I think there is something about that. And when you talk about sovereignty, and if you lack somewhat a common grammar, then what happened also is that containment become then the response. If it's true about sovereignty, then you're containing the problems. You still believe that you can contain the problems outside of your border. And we've seen that with COVID, with all the problems related to that. We see that tragically every day with migrants and migration. So I think there is something about the sovereignty and the containment element that makes, in fact, international organization and in general, humanitarian organization in a very difficult situation. So that's the second element that will continue to shape whatever happens when you think about humanitarian organization. The third one, and on that one, I'm not sure I'm right. Uh, not that I'm saying the first two are perfect, but this one, I'm not sure I have the right wording, but I'm, I would like to try to share something with you, and it's maybe, 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 maybe it's something that we still need to study a little bit. I think it's, it's the, what I would call the shift, or maybe the evolution, in the way we do collectively experience vulnerability. There is something happening to us as a collective and also as an individual that has shifted over the last few years about vulnerability and what, who is vulnerable and how are we vulnerable collectively. And it's related not only, but it's related to a, a mix of global crisis and maybe a lack of response from, from states. Uh, that makes us a little bit more vulnerable. If you just look at what has happened and what's happening with the climate crisis, over the last five years, we all feel without any exception that it's coming very close and much faster than expected, right? We do, we really do. And we do that, it's not just affecting us and our family, but it's affecting entire society. I was just in France, for example. In France, one of the debates, of course, one of the debates is about retirement, right? So we can have a long discussion about that. But the other one is very much about the fact that there's no water anymore. Really no water, major crisis, and it's coming. So, and what do you do with it, as an example? So it's very concrete for a lot of countries, including for our own country here. I think the other element is, of course, related to COVID. Not so much COVID as such, but the fact that the pandemic can really affect us, change our behavior, change by the way uh, we are relating to each other, change the law, change the exceptions in which we operate. And, and we all feel, if you look at education, health, logistics, that our systems also have a systemic vulnerability. So I think there is something in terms of how it works. And my assumption, what I see is, and you looked at also in history, is when you feel that somewhat vulnerability is coming closer to you as individual, but also as collective, it has an impact on the way you are distributing empathy and solidarity and possibly resources. And how do you feel related, in fact, to, uh, to the other vulnerability, to the vulnerability of the other, right? 
So I think there is something about that which I think is important to understand. And, and it's interesting if, if I look at humanitarian action because that has a huge impact, double impact. A, we are collectively still moved by, I would say, classical vulnerability related to a human and humanitarian emergency. Look at all of us, we've seen the terrible image and suffering of the people in the earthquake in Turkey and in Syria. All of us, so we are suddenly taken aback. We understand this vulnerability, but after two days, for good reason, we are over. And I think that is one of the big challenges for humanitarian actions. We know that emergency is only one part of something much more so, smaller. We need to be able to think long-term. We need to be able to operate in protracted crisis. So I think you have also a double shock. So vulnerability are coming closer to us, and the one we are moved about are something, you know, the very specific a group of migrants dying uh, or an earthquake, and that's it, right? So I think there is really something, a question here, and I'm still wondering what will be the impact. We've seen already an impact in terms of funding, no surprise about it. But it's not just the funding, it's how do you relate to the vulnerability of the other, and how do you feel yourself that you're part of something which is larger? So the third point is somewhat the shift in the way we experience vulnerability, and, and then what, what it means for us, for the people, to support the humanitarian action in that case. The first, the fourth one, um, and again, I'm not sure that the word I'm using are the one, one, right one, but you, you will, I, I hope, understand. It's what I would call the paradox of accountability. And that has a huge impact, I would say, also on the way you think humanitarian actions. And again, as you can see, I'm focusing really on humanitarian action that are happening in, in difficult places where you have a very low governance, where the national government is not always able to provide basic solutions or services to its own population, right? That's where I'm focusing on. One of the reasons is because if you look at natural disaster, it's one of the good news is right now, over the last 15 years, you can see that uh, the localization, the fact that local actors have been able to take over and to really control what they do for humanitarian action is something very powerful, really. Over the last 15 years, I've seen in my own former family, the Red Cross, for example, how much local Red Cross are much better when it comes to natural disaster with the, lo with the local government, uh, and that, that's something important. So I'm focusing really on the, on the places where what we call protracted conflict, where conflicts are lasting. I'm thinking about, of course, Yemen, Afghanistan, Congo, but you can think about Myanmar, you can maybe think also about Ukraine, and a lot of places like that. So in these places, when you operate, you do have a level of risk that is high, of course, because you're operating with very complex stakeholders. Some of them are considered as terrorists. Some of them are absolutely not legal somewhat. You are also operating in a level where the level of security is sometimes very low, and you need to understand what happens. You have hostage taking. You do have a lot of a difficult situation. And in this environment, we, I think the paradox of accountability is challenging very much humanitarian. Why? Because we're living in a world where I feel we, on one hand, want all to be accountable, to start with our politicians, rightly so, right? And we want also our leaders to be accountable as a society, and we all want that. But at the same time, the way we think accountability, if I translate that, is about, I want this guy to be fired. I want this person to be canceled. I want some blood, right? So I think the way we talk about accountability as a collective is an enormous pressure on the specific people, and we are not ready at all as a society to accept excuse or inquiry. We want decision to be made. And, and if, if it's true, that's at least my perception. What I've seen is over time is I've seen developed a system 
to somewhat allow leaders, organization, corporate, state, to somewhat be careful not to be pushed too much into account, right? and not being pushing too much into accounting. So we have a system that has been developed to try to manage risk as much as possible, but by managing risk, bringing third party, making sure that we can show to the public very suddenly that we have done our best, but not really for accountably reason, in order to avoid to be killed in the public space, right? There is something around that. It's a bit more subtle, but there is something about that. In my own experience, and I did that together with you, Valérie, if I may say, I have experienced that as a CEO of the ICSC at the time, I've experienced that over my last you know, few years, you mentioned I, I left my position in 2020, but I would say since 2015 already, to give a bit of a sense, last maybe few years, I had the feeling when I was talking to high-level minister or to high-level public servants representing a country willing to invest into the operation of my organization in Syria, for example, in Afghanistan, the question was not about performance, no. No, the question was about how can I transfer the risk to you, right? So there was a real question. And of course, if that is the question, that's why I talk about the paradox of accountability. We all agree about the importance of accountability, but if the accountability transfers itself in terms of a risk management and a risk transfer, of course, you're challenging the entire way international organization operating, because this risk transfer will have an impact not just on the organization, but also to all the partner, to all, because the risk transfer will be going down the chain, I can tell you. So I think there is something about that, and I've not seen any change in that. And, and that has a huge impact in the way uh, humanitarian organization will continue, and especially professional organization, want to be able to operate in difficult places. So that's the fourth, uh, fourth element. And the fifth one, and by the way, I should say the fourth one also, one word, um, in, in the, the, the project that we carry out uh, together with you, Andrew and, and, and Valerie, we did a survey, right? And I think we surveyed 50 CEO, 50 leaders of, of 50 different INGO. And what I was struck about when you asked them what is for you possibly the most important field or issue that will impact not just your work now, but the, Europe, the, the, the work in the Europe to come, what they were saying was risk management and donor compliance. It's interesting. So their feedback, to my surprise, was not about you know, accessing or the needs of the people. No, 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 it was risk management and donor compliance. So, so, so it's also confirmed by the experience of leaders. And there is really something around that that is important to have in mind. So the fifth issue um, is, it's not a surprise because it's an issue that is really at the core of what we do when you are humanitarian. It's, it's the fact that trust is becoming even a rarer, a more rare community. Uh, and that's a trend that is going on for a long time, but I, I see that really changing fast uh, and with a lot of impact. And I would argue that uh, being a humanitarian, being an NGO, we can even talk about that, um, is not anymore a guarantee that you have a moral high ground at all, both in this country, but also abroad, right, very clearly. Uh, and we can, we can go up about why, what's happening, and I think that one of the reasons, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons is uh, we're living in a time where uh, there is a lot of distrust towards the other. Maybe, maybe the default mode is not, I trust you, but I'm not sure who you are, I want to understand. You are a humanitarian, you want to help me, prove me, prove me that your agenda is an honest agenda, and of course there was a lot of stories that are not very good for humanitarian as well. Prove me also that you're not part of a global agenda, 
prove me that your principles are not part of something that I don't really understand. So I think there is a lot of things about that. And let's recognize still today that the humanitarian professional are still most of them, not all of them, coming from the West and somewhat for a long time went to the so-called global south. So I think there is also something. And when was the last time that an organ, a country like, like the UK or Germany would accept international organization coming from China or Russia to help them? You know? So if you think about it. So there is also, in terms of pure reflections about reciprocity, that, that is an element. So, this is five. We, we, can, we can have much more, but think about that, the digitalization and the fact that it's perceived more a process than what it means for people. The sovereignty and then the containment questions around that. The change in the way we experience collectively uh, vulnerability. The paradox of accountability and the trust as a, as a, as a major issue. So what, what interests me now is, is what does that mean then for, in fact, international humanitarian actors? And I would have, we should have started when I'm thinking about humanitarian actors and, and seeing uh, my friend Hugo Slim in the, in the, in the room, uh, when I talk about humanitarian actors, I don't talk only about humanitarian as, a, as you know, doing transactions where you come and you bring relief to people that need relief. I really think about humanitarian as a social practice that seeks to understand the conditions, the need of the people, then work with the people, with their association possibly, with the government or the people who control them, right, in a way or another, in order to, uh, to um, achieve improvement in their people's life and possibly in their collective experience. So really grasp that. So the, the, the idea that we just bring relief in a principled way, somewhat almost transactional, this is gone, right? So I think it's important also to, to know that. So if we think about being able to, to adapt itself, my point based on the, on the five elements that might challenge humanitarian organization over time, I would say, yes, it's possible to adapt, but this time, it needs to be radical. It means it needs to touch deeply the organization. And my sense is, still a lot of adaptation have been in the margin of the organization and not at the core of the organization. And that's, of course, risky, right? And I would like now to present several ways, and again, we can discuss about where, where in fact, the. Uh, my sense where, where it needs to, to happen. But if you want to adapt, and that's the first point, if you want to adapt, you need to recognize also when there are gaps between theory and practice. And of course, I'm saying that out of love, right? I should have started with that, Charles. I still love the humanitarian, you know? I, I'm, 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 you know, no bitterness. I loved every day I spent at the ICSC. I saw, saw the limit. Uh, I still, still say that, but I'm also able to say that there was some, some real issue, and there are still some issues. So the first one, you need to recognize that there is a gap between theory and practice. You would say that's normal everywhere. But on one specific point that is really challenging is the way humanitarians believe and talk about putting people and communities affected by war or by disaster at the center, at the center of their action, strategy, communication. And I would argue I would argue that's true. They really think about it. Their heart is in it. Their strategy is there. Their communication is about people at the center. But if you observe, and let me give you an example. If you take organizational development, it's always very interesting to observe an organization. Never look at the budget, but look at where did they invest over the last 10 years in terms of organizational development. What was the new position? What are the new programs? Where did they invest and where did they disinvest? And you 
that. What you will see over the last 10 years is the massive investment was around compliance, risk management, impact, evaluation, result, value for money. And it's not wrong or right, but it's clear. And the reason is, okay, first lesson is, oh, wow, that means that organization adapted to a very concrete reality, which is, in fact, the reality of the donor. And I'm not saying that's the fault of the donor, it's just a reality. So first, we start to see at the center, maybe, but the reality in terms of adaptation has been first and foremost to the pressure, to the ask, to the requirement of your donor. And surprisingly, if you don't go one step further and you look more closely, and you look at how they operate, where international organizations are, how much effort they're putting, where the leadership is spending time, you will see there is a third category of, I'm careful what I'm saying, almost clients. So if we agree, and I'm careful, I'm saying don't, don't you know, blame me immediately, but if we think about people and community affected being a client, the, really the center, we start to realize, oh, the donors are also possibly a client, but there is a third category, which are, of course, the group, normally you know, non-state armed group, but sometimes government, that are controlling the territory and the fate of people and community affected. You can't access to them very rarely, easily. You need to negotiate that space, right? And of course, they impact also the way you are relating, the way you organize yourself, the people that you bring in your organization. So I would argue it would be good in order to adapt, to recognize that there is a gap, to recognize there is three sort of clients, if I may say, not just one. So the people, yes, and the community, of course, but the donors are absolutely central and possibly the Taliban, Iraq government or other that are very central to your organization. It's not wrong or right, but it will be useful not to hide as an organization or as a sector behind the kind of, oh, people at the center is always, what are you talking about? Because it will help to maybe be a bit more clear of where can we have that. Um, this, the second point is, is really related if we now look at adaptation. The first, the, the, let's say the main adaptation would be, and it's a difficult one, that was the most challenging one I had as a CEO and I still believe it's very difficult. It's to be true to the evolution of the needs of the people at their condition. And really true, which means challenging your own design of your own program and can I even go one step further, challenging your KPI. We have to work with KPI, we have to show that we have impact, we have to show that we've been very efficient. And the reality is, most of the places where you operate, the need of the people do not correspond to the KPI you developed, surprisingly, right? Uh, and then you need to be able to deal with that. Maybe the need of the people, especially if you work in protracted crisis, where the emergency is lasting. Think about Afghanistan. Things about Yemen, think about Somalia, or Myanmar, and I can go on and on, right? Colombia and other places like that. It goes on. So I think the, the issue is then you need to understand that what people, what community are talking to you, the need they are explaining might be very different to the one you would like to see or you would like to be able to respond. It might be about, in fact, their own security. It might be about the behavior and the pressure they are under, if you're a woman, for example, and what it means. It might be job, it might be uh, Wi-Fi, it might be a different set 
very different nature. And I'm not saying as a humanitarian, you need to be able to respond to it, and maybe you need to leave that space, which is a classical space. There is a crisis, as you might end I'm responding like a fire brigade. No, 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 no. What maybe the expectation is, you need to be able to understand or at least try to understand the evolution of the league. Not to respond, but you need to be able to understand in order to connect, in order to see what happens. And that's why I like the your definition you brought about the fact that humanitarian action is a social practice that seeks to understand the conditions and the need of the people. And that takes time. And it's an important one. So be true to the evolution. It doesn't mean that you are perfect in responding, but you are absolutely key. And you need to be the one who understands what's happening for the people. And including listen to the people, to the fact that Wi-Fi is maybe a central part right now, or data is a central part for a lot of people. And being able to integrate that and, and, and maybe redesign then your KPI and your program. The third element, um, I'm still looking at adaptation. So the first one is really agree about the gap between theory and, and practice. The second one is really the ability to, to look at the evolution of the needs and the condition of the people and to be true about it. The third one is really, and it's basic, and I'm sorry to say that because some of you are really expert, but still, it's to engage all actors. And in, I'm surprised to say that in 21st century, in 2023, right here in Oxford, but I need to say that in a very highly polarized environment, I must say I'm stunned by what I read, see, listen about Russia and Ukraine, for example. So as a humanitarian, we can have whatever position about Russia and and I totally agree and understand about what we say when Russia is invading and what it means in terms of suffering, what it means in terms of the breach of international law, absolutely. And at the same time, as a humanitarian, you need to be willing to continue to engage with Russia. No question. Central. You need to be able to engage with every single people. So I'm worried when an entire society says, no, we should not talk to them, they should be cancelled out. Nothing. Really? Uh, are you sure? Uh, so as a humanitarian, sounds basic, but that is a very, very complex endeavor. And as an adaptation means that you need to be able to willing to talk to all people, even the, even the most difficult, even the ones that are challenging maybe your value right now. It's a fundamental. And I would say surprisingly, that remains one of the rare, unique selling positions, if I may use it, of the humanitarian sector. Really, can still do it, but should do it, even if it's very painful. The fourth one, and this is not new, but this is something which maybe is important to look into that. I think we can't think humanitarian actions without thinking also the framework in which we operate. And we can't think humanitarian action without thinking about international public law. We can't think humanitarian action without thinking about protection. And I would argue that all organizations, all professional organizations that are operating internationally, even if they're not experts of so-called protection, like my former organization, the ICSC, was, they need to be able to think about protection. They need to understand there is an important dimension of protection when it comes to the people and, and the community affected. And they need to go one step further, which is also to understand there is a need when it comes to protection in the virtual world as well as a real, so-called real world. Really, that is central. I have not seen humanitarian organization being at the forefront of some of these issues related, for example, to data protection. They need. That is a place that needs to happen. I've seen some of them working around that, but not really be at the forefront. Should be. And that should not be one organization only. That should be sector-wide, as an example. 
So if you think about adaptation, it's also your own ability to understand that possibly tomorrow you will have more local organization and maybe businesses that will do the relief work, and it's okay. But the protection part, the ability to understand, and when I talk protection, I'm not just talking about visiting prisoner. I'm really talking protection with what I would call a big P, which is you really think about the protection dimension in everything you do is something that needs to be regenerated, and I think needs to be understood as something that is really the responsibility of humanitarian actors when they operate in protective context. It's very difficult, it's very complicated, but learning how to leverage on international public law is a central part. That needs to be just owned by one organization. That needs to be something needs that is very powerful. Are you still with me? Yes, absolutely, great, so perfect. So I'll give you three more place to adapt and then I'm closing. I'm more now an organization, but I think it's an important one, is I really think, in terms of adaptation, that humanitarian organization needs to regain control over compliance. It's too easy to complain about the compliance of the donor. Really, it's too easy. It's too easy to just say, oh, can't do, donor is asking, I'm trying to implement, sorry about it, you know. Uh, there is a need to reshape it to rediscuss it. But to do that, you need to collaborate. I, that is difficult in the American world. You need to be able to propose a model that would work and would be interesting in terms of compliance. I know it's difficult. I think, again, some of you have worked hard on the grand bargain and all some of the discussion at the time between donors and humanitarian organization, as an example. But it's a time where humanitarian organization, if they want to be able to continue to be relevant and somewhat to be able to manage this complex relationship between donors and themselves and the people affected, they need to invest, but invest intellectually also, in terms of what is compliance in a very unstable environment. How does that work? What are the information are we sharing? I think th there is something here that has totally not been invested, almost, I would say politically, by humanity. But to do that, you, need to, you absolutely need to collaborate. You can't do that as, as a single organization and hoping that your competitor will suffer more than you when it comes to accountability, because that is not exactly what, what is good. And we've seen that in a very negative way. You also need, uh, in terms of adaptation, to shape new alliances. I think there is no way that humanitarian organization will be able to continue to be relevant, uh, including big organization. Uh, and here, what I mean, shape new alliances, is not just alliances within the humanitarian sectors, or with development sectors, and we can talk about it. I'm really thinking about also political alliances. I am of the opinion, for example, that there's a time where humanitarian organizations need to shape alliances with the cities around the world. I really think cities are coming up and emerging as a strong power. Not perfect. They won't solve everything. You will see that soon. I think there is a report on multilateralism that is again coming up and soon with a proposal. And one of the proposals of how do we rebuild multilateralism in this world uh, will be to say, mm, even within the UN, we have to give space to cities. Cities have a role to play. Why? Because they are the front line of a lot of issues. They have to deal with the migration, the climate crisis. They're not perfect. Of course, they will not solve all the problem. But they have a role to play right now in a time where state nation together are not able to create the consensus that are needed 
to deal with global solutions. So shaping new alliance means also humanitarian being a little bit more open, a little bit more curious about trying to find the new alliances. And not just one or two, but really do that. I think there is also a role to play with the academic world uh, in general. So I think the academic world, okay, it's difficult to say the academic world as such, but I think I see two trends. One trend is I see the academic world, some universities, some centers being willing to try to find a role in a society, I see others also willing to retrench from the, from the society. The humanitarian world needs to work and, and use the academic space, I would say, and the, the academic liberty and the academic multidisciplinary to be able to develop some ability to understand, again, the needs of the people, have a better perspective on long-term impact. I'm not talking now specific, specific KPI, but long-term impact of their role. They need to be able to understand that and have a different role to look into that. Uh, I think that, that is an important one. My last point, and I would like to conclude with that, and it's the most important one in terms of change for me and adaptation, and that's the one so far where I've seen us, and here I'm saying us, uh, uh, out of love, let's put it that way, uh, failing, or maybe not, not taking this in, in, seriously enough. It's about the people. It's about who is a humanitarian, and who has the power in international organization, but also in international NGO and, and in humanitarian professional organization. I think we have not taken seriously or not enough the so-called decolonization element. We don't understand it. We're nervous about it. We're not the only one. Right? We don't see it. Uh, we've hide ourselves you know, behind the fact that you know, you need, again, back to the model, you need fire brigade and you need people that are able to carry that forward. Really? Um, I think there is a massive change that needs to happen, very clearly for me. And I'm amazed when I look at the survey of our 50 leaders, they all look like me. And it's okay, that's maybe not just the problems, but I think there is too male-dominated, again, totally. They are too Western-dominated, totally. And that's maybe not the most important. I think the way power is shared within an organization remains very classical. So where are the base? Where are the headquarter? Where are we anchored? Uh, that's interesting. How do we look at the partner? I mean, if you look at one thing that is never discussed in terms of model, you have in the humanitarian at least several models, but you really have massively two models. One model is direct operation, so you operate directly with your own people on the ground in partnering with people. But there's a lot of other organizations that operate via partner, but I would say it's a subcontracting model. And the subcontracting model creates also dimensions of power and a relationship between the center and the periphery within organization that is very problematic. It's not new at all, but I'm amazed to see the difficulties of humanitarian organization to somewhat challenge that. I've seen again a lot of doubt about localization when you talk about that, and it will be interesting to reflect about what has worked. So in localization, as I mentioned, when it comes to natural disaster over the last 15 years, I would consider, not perfect, but there was some clear success, and one of the reasons was because I think it was not just the organization, it was also the local government, it was also because maybe there was a need to be able, and the people understood why it was important. I know in protracted crisis it's much more difficult, it's much more complex, but at the same time there is no way for humanitarian organization to be able to move if they're not able to embrace, I would say, an hybrid complex model. Right? Because it's not just localization, kind of, I dropped now. No, no, no. But it, it is certainly a different way to share power between 
locally hired staff and expatriate. We have different wages, for example, that are absolutely not, you can't explain, I'm sorry to say that. So I think, how do we do that? Uh, how, what is the language we use, for example, when we describe these different functions? So I think there are elements that are very central. And if humanitarian organizations want to be able to continue to operate and want to be perceived as relevant, and if we agree that is first and foremost a social practice with a certain code and rules and, and principle, you need to make sure that then the entire organization with all the level are able to, uh, to be rooted in the community of where it happens with all the problems. Again, I'm saying when it's a war, I'm not saying you should just say local, the local organization will be right. That's not what I'm saying. But if we want to make a, a check and balance within each organization, the way the power is distributed need to be really seriously challenged. So that's the several area where, back to what we said, it's not about adaptation as such, but it's possibly adapting in specific area. Organization can choose, or maybe will be forced to adapt in some of the places. And, and, and maybe I should finish with that, is if international organization, or let's say humanitarian organization working internationally do not want to adapt, or can't adapt maybe, or want to adapt only to one places, no worry, they will not disappear. They will just shrunk. And what's happening already, and it's difficult to capture, because again, the figures we're giving are difficult to observe. I would argue right now, it's already the case, that the market share, and I'm careful what I'm using, the market share of international humanitarian organization has, has, has certainly shrink a little bit. And not towards competitor, but towards the people. I'm still amazed, if you look at Somalia or Syria, two very different contexts, to see that a lot of humanitarian assistance aid came from the community itself, from the diaspora, from the business. Maybe that's true. It was not principled in such of, and that's maybe why humanitarian can still do, bring a very impartial humanitarian uh, response, which is, of course, much more difficult when it comes from a community, because the community wants to help their own people. But if there is no will and no ambitions and maybe no push to do that collectively, because that's the other story, uh, I think the only risk is you will still be, will still reflect together, I hope it will be another project, we'll see, will still reflect together of what happens to humanitarian actions and it will shrink uh, a bit more in terms of market share and be less relevant for a lot of people uh, and that is maybe the questions we should ask ourselves. Thank you very much. Well, um, no shortage of things to sink our teeth into there. Um, we've got uh, up to half an hour for questions, and I've just been asked to remind everybody that this part of the talk is also being webcast and recorded. Uh, we have at least one roving mic. Who would like to get us going? The gentleman right at the back closest to the mic. Hello, thank you very much. Ray Taylor from Orfed, and uh, we work on multi-continent famines. So um, Amartya Sen and others showed very clearly that most famines in the 20th century were to do with distribution and equity and war. But this year, for the first time since 1816, we're looking at 48 countries 
may face an, an absolute shortage of food where, where the WFP and major relief agencies simply are not able to get enough food to those 48 countries in, in those four continents. That's a huge change, you know, when you're, you're expecting that the supplies will come. And it, it relates to what you said about Russia being one of the world's biggest exporters, but even more so to the fertilizer crisis that affects both Russia and Belarus. So have you thought about this? Do you have any hope or advice for, for the, the, the major NGOs? Because we haven't been let down, you know, by the FAO, IMF. They've been talking about this since April last year. So the men in gray suits and the women in gray suits have done really well for us on this occasion. And it's, it's us that isn't really facing what's coming. You know, Edinburgh University have, have projected the likely deaths and so on. So I wonder if you see that as a, as a challenge we can rise to and how. Yes, I do. Thank you very much for, for your, your comments and your question. Yes, I do. I'm very nervous about what I see happening uh, in front of us, uh, both in terms of, as you mentioned, in terms of hunger, but I'm also very nervous about what I see in terms of climate crisis and the speed in which happening. I mean, the, some, some of the regions seems to me under such a pressure so we know already that the migration will be extraordinarily high, and I think there is no questions about that. Um, what, to, what to do? I think we are back to what we said at the beginning. I think we need to create new alliances. That's very clear to me. It needs to be discussed with other people than just the IMF and the World Bank. The World Bank and the IMF will do what they are good at, uh, which is somewhat to, uh, to somewhat frame the response, maybe put a price on the response, but they won't be able to, uh, to provide the response to 48 countries. No way. So I think if, if we want to be able to move in the right direction, so I think and not just waiting at this at absolute disaster, uh, which will be then too late because we know one of the problems with famine is if we intervene too late, uh, and maybe we are already too late in some of the places, what I see some of the figures, uh, you, we need to create a different set of alliances, absolutely. And the alliances are maybe with different set of foundation of, of cities and back to that, but really creating a dynamic that is a bit different. Otherwise, we will face and I'm, I'm rather, to be honest on that one, I'm a little bit grim. I don't have a lot of hope that things will change quickly because I see a lot of other places where I don't have the feeling that the international community is ready to move in the right directions. If I could move the mic all the way to the front, and I think Lucy was flagging you just there. Firstly, thank you. That was an absolutely excellent talk. And I think we were all amazed that you had no PowerPoint to rely on. It was all in your head. Um, my question was this. A, a lot of what you talked about, the, the what needs to happen, did rely on this collaboration, this, um, this idea that humanitarian organizations, which have often been pitted against each other or, or are pitted against each other in funding um, sort of competitions, would be able to come together and make some big, hard, and potentially expensive decisions. What could you imagine could happen to make that happen? What could be done that would get that collaboration and change to happen? Mm. It's a good question because I, as a CEO, I was not able to bring the collaboration I wanted to do. I think there is two, there is several elements. Uh, maybe there is three. The first one is a common threat always creates, you know, when you are threatened by something that creates maybe suddenly uh, uh, element. You could have a new competitors coming in. Um, I'm sorry just to look into it. I hope you're not shocked by that. But you could have, and then we see that in development, you saw that uh, big organization like PwC, for example, 
uh, KPMG were starting to move into uh, the area of first development and humanitarian. Why? Because they understand there is a market when it comes to risk management. Right? They understand that right now government would be ready to pay a little bit more, a bit of a you know, premium, as long as I can use one of the big ones as a, can I say, a, a risk manager. Uh, and then what will happen is you would hire PwC, I hope I'm okay, whatever, KPMG or one of the orga this organization, and then they will subcontract based on a very specific KPI. They will subcontract an organization to do that. So far, they have somewhat resisted to move into conflict because the level of risk is a bit too high, but they have moved already in some of the development area. And if you look specifically about some of the figures in this country where the money has gone over the last five years, you'll be surprised that they've gone uh, you know, massively to some of these in-between organizations. So let's imagine that PwC, KPMG, and others start to really move aggressively suddenly into the market. Mm. Um, I would say traditionally humanitarian actors might start to say, Ooh, <laughs> that's really time uh, to act together because we will soon not be in a position to be able to do it. So that's one option. Option two, less money, less resources. Very sad to say that. Uh, but when you have less resources, there is a moment, if you're smart, uh, where you need to start to reflect about the way you collaborate uh, and the way you, you want to do that. I know it's rare because normally when you have less money, you become more competitive. But there is a moment where you maybe want to start to reflect and have a sense. And then maybe the last one, uh, which is maybe the, the most interesting one, is when you start to understand that you will not be able to operate anymore based on your own assumption. Uh, there are places that are more and more difficult to reach out for international organization, very clearly, because the cost of operating in terms of security for anyone is too high. Uh, there are places where you need to have a much better understanding of the evolution of the need and the condition. So you might be then more willing to uh, work and collaborate uh, with the local actors and find a way. If I give an example, and again, take it, it all that is public, so I'm very nervous about what I can say or not. But mm -hmm. I give you an example about my own organization, my, my former organization. When ICSC was and still is working full-fledged in big operations, like Afghanistan, or like Yemen. Frankly, we would collaborate with the Red Cross and Red Crescent, and nicely with the UN, whatever, but not that much, right? Carefully managing our own territory, if I may say so. When we were operating in places where we were smaller, because we didn't have really a mandate to operate, because maybe state didn't want us to be there, or maybe because we were under the threshold of a classical conflict, I'm thinking, about mid I'm thinking about, for example, Latin America and places like Salvador, Guatemala, whatever, at some moment in history, and rather recent history. We were much more collaborative because we were smaller and we had no choices than to collaborate deeply with the National Red Cross that was then running the show together with us. So I, what I'm saying here, I'm trying to observe that. It doesn't have to be like that, but then when there is a, almost a common understanding and maybe I would say almost... Um, an agreement about uh, the fact that we are interdependent, that will change a bit the tactics. And last but not least, that's another element, is if we continue to have a model of subcontracting, uh, uh, let's say, humanitarian actors in the humanitarian response, 
uh, and that donors continue to be to be ready to pay. That's maybe the fourth element. So it's also a different way to look at that. That would be very difficult to be able to collaborate. So I think there is also a model that is really, some, especially the subcontracting model, that is really not in favor of collaboration. Okay, we have another question at the front, then I think someone in the middle of the room should get a go, but Mark. Thank you, that was terrific. So I want to return to the first question in a way, which is it's sort of the eight billion people problem. And I'm just wondering what the boundaries of humanitarian care are when we've got people, an enormous amount of economic migration, and when is economic migration actually a response to humanitarian crisis? And I suppose it goes back to one of your early points, which is the rise of sovereignty and containment. Yeah. And we're trying to contain something which is now under such pressure. Um, and I, it, I mean, I can't see anything other than a rather pessimistic future, but it, it is that challenge. When is it humanitarian? When is it not? Mm. So we're okay with people coming away from an earthquake, but we don't like people coming across the channel in rubber boats. Uh, you, you're, you're asking a, a, a deep uh, question. You can, say, so you can also ask the questions about the migrants and the refugee coming from Ukraine and versus what happens to them and versus you know, what happened to Syrian or Afghan uh, migrants. Um, okay, let, let me try to see. The, the first is we do have as a humanitarian, or humanitarian have to be very humble. I mean, they don't call the shots for that kind of killing. Let's be very clear, right? And I think their ability to help is very limited. The key questions, and maybe the moral question sometimes, is do you want to intervene into a, a framework in which you are used to manage crowd, right? Uh, and, and I think there is something about that. If I look at migrants, I think one of the key questions is do you want to continue to make the life of migrants in the border of, of uh, Greece? And tomorrow soon when it will be, will create European hub in Niger, do you want as humanitarian to somewhat manage the fact that people are waiting there and decrease a little bit the suffering, but you are still absolutely not tackling at all the fundamental problems? And I think this is not new. Humanitarian has always had to balance that. My sense is if we, you are able to provide an impartial and independent response and you are able to somewhat provide humanity somewhere, you have to go for it. But, or end at the same time, being super clear about what is your role, what are the limits of your role and how to do that. I mean, as I was working in an organization that were systematically confronted with that. When you are operating in prison, I can tell you, you really are confronted with issues that are not related or beyond your control, but you need to be aware of. So I think that's the balance in which we operate. So all what you talk about the migration questions, all what you talk before about the, the massive health but also hunger issue that are coming to us. Uh, yes, there is a role for humanitarian, absolutely, but humanitarian needs to be very humble, but at the same time being able maybe to push and create the right alliances to maybe shift a little bit some of the policy. That, that, is, the, that is the balance in which you are somewhat operating. Very fragile balance, very fragile. Given we have in the room with us, and I will get to the middle of the room, I promise, but a former DFID Secretary of State and Head of the Office for Humanitarian Affairs in the UN, I think it would be rather remiss not to bring Valerie into the conversation at this stage. Um, thank you, and Eve, thank you very much. Um, you really encapsulated, I think, a lot of the discussions and debates that we've been having over many, many years. But I really wanted to, to partly come back, Mark, to your question about, you know, who's where does humanitarian action stop and how do we define that? Um, but also, Eve, to come back to a couple of the points that, that you made in your fantastic introduction. On this issue of where, do, where does humanitarian action begin or stop? I mean, in a way, I think the answer rests with what Eve was talking about, about people. 
Because always you have to say, people do not, they don't experience their lives in stages. They don't say, oh, I'm in a humanitarian crisis today, and tomorrow, actually, I'm in a development crisis. So the important thing is really about how are we responding to the needs of the people on the ground? And one of the big challenges we always have is this distinction between what happens as a result of conflict or what happens as a result of natural disaster. Which partly brings me to, to, to your point, Eve, about sovereignty. Because I thought it was really striking recently when we were looking at what was happening in Turkey and Syria and watching how people were responding and talking about the slowness of the response and everything else, that actually there was quite a lot of challenging from the people on the ground themselves in the context of Syria about, well, why didn't you just cross the border? Real challenge of this, uh, the answers that were coming from international organizations, the UN and everybody else, who were saying, obviously we couldn't just cross the border because we needed the permission of the Syrian government, and people on the ground saying, but there were people suffering and there was nobody helping them. So I guess, Eve, my question to you in the context of your sovereignty point, and this is something that we have talked about time and time again, is, is there anything or is there a way in which we can use the fact that people on the ground now are challenging the sovereignty narrative in a helpful rather than unhelpful way? It's ba it basically becomes people versus government. Mm -hmm. uh, and then my second, I've got lots of questions yeah, for yeah. you, but, <laughs> but I won't uh, ask yeah. them all. But my second question is really about um, your point about risk. Because we all saw the way that over time, risk was being um, uh, uh, risk was being used almost as a way, uh, governments were trying to shove the risk onto the people doing humanitarian action. The most obvious example was always, why is a proportion of your aid? It may have been, you know, 0.0001%, uh, but why does a proportion of your aid end up in the hands of Al-Shabaab or you know, some other organization on the That's ground right. uh, without any kind of recognition that you are operating in the most challenging uh, circumstances possible. And it would be pretty amazing if some of the aid didn't go um, astray. So t on, on this risk point, how can we help the pe ordinary people, as it were, to really understand that? Because what what ministers and governments are worried about is a headline which says your hard-earned tax dollars have gone into the hands of you know, some armed group on the ground, but it partly has traction because we haven't really helped people to understand the difficulty of delivering that aid. I mean, I would sit in New York, sign off for you know, members of staff that I was responsible for to cross conflict lines, and I'd be getting a phone call saying, we're being shot at, can you help us? I mean, that is the reality mm -hmm. of uh, the experience of people on the ground, but nobody really understands and appreciates that, and is there more that we can do to recreate the kind of uh, alignment that I think we had many, many years ago when there was a greater support for humanitarian and development action. 
My apologies for being so long. That was great. Uh, I start with the last question. Um, I have the feeling that um, the time you mentioned about alignment, there was also an alignment about uh, somewhere the way humanitarian were talking about the, the, the operation and what was their own reality, right? Which is somewhat, we still believe into emergency and we are mainly related to emergency and that's what distinguishes us from development actors. That has changed dramatically, right? And for the good reason too, right? So I think one of the big issues is humanitarian, the way they communicate, the way they fundraise, it's still around emergency, most of the time, right? Or around specific, what's so-called audiences, target audiences, you know, the child or the people, whatever. So, so being able to tell the story of the complexity of the humanitarian response in Syria, for example, and what it means, and who needs to be brought in, and why it's a risk, is a super complicated element. But it's true. What I still see, I'm receiving that as a citizen, I'm re still receiving a lot of ask in terms of funding, and they are never about the complexity of operating, they're always about emergency, they're always about give us money and we will translate this money in immediate response, and be aware this response will be perfect. Oh Jesus, that's not at all. So I think the first thing would be to start as humanitarian might be willing to slightly slightly change a bit the way they were talking. That would help, though. So that's maybe the first element. But I need to recognize also that people don't listen to humanitarian anyway. So we still believe it's useful to do that. I'm sorry to say that. Uh, uh, but uh, um, I'm recently chair of a media group, and, and one of my, I knew it, but you know, when you see that, when you look at the age of people reading newspaper, you're a little bit worrying about and worried about where people will be influenced by what. So I think the key question would be, how are the younger generation being informed? Where do they informed? I've not seen really a lot of influencer on the YouTube 45 seconds talking about the complexity. I've not seen maybe, and maybe that needs to where it happens. I've not seen a lot of young Syrian being able to maybe express that, or maybe at least not reaching out. So I think there is a question that goes much beyond just humanity and being able to communicate and influencing and telling the story. Uh, last but not least, um, what would be useful still though, and that's possible, I don't find humanitarian have done, we, we say, I can start with me, we didn't do a, a good job enough also with parliamentary. Uh, I think it's not just then the right to public, but also parliaments need, for example, to understand what it means. What are the questions of risk? How do we operate? But let's also be honest, most of the European parliament, for example, have not really discussed, in fact, also the way their own country are operating in Syria or in Libya or whatever. So if you as a humanitarian start to talk about that, you will find a lot of resistance also from the government, who are not at all interested to talk about special forces and what it means and a whole come, oh, by the way, they are in the same place than humanitarian actors. So I think it's also interesting uh, around, around that. But it's a big challenge, I agree with you, and very difficult for me in Sims to change. The first one about the people versus the government, um, for me, I don't think there's a global response. I think there are specific response, and it's about the people, it's not about us in the humanitarian. Uh, I have the impression, and that's the good news, is government, including non-democratic or so-called government, are more and more very aware of the importance of the public opinion. And they are aware, they try to control them, but they're aware of how difficult it is to have suddenly your own citizen on camera you know, talking about how you failed, 
And we've seen that over the last six months. We've seen how much China has been impacted by that. We've seen that how much Turkey is very nervous about that. So it's interesting to observe at what moment. And this is not something that you can control. I see that as an interesting way to look at that. Of course, then it doesn't work everywhere. In Syria, for example, people can continue to, to say that. And I don't think the Assad regime will feel any way related to that question. Though, I still feel, surprisingly enough, that even the Assad regime is willing to somewhat manage a bit its own reputation. So my point would be it's not something that should be pushed or helped, but there's a recognition, and that needs maybe to be, we need to be more aware that today, government, whatever the, the government is and whatever the country is, seems to be more aware and more influenced and more nervous about what their own people think, especially when the people are alive. Uh, there is something about that that is very interesting. That, does that mean that they will change the way they interact with people and change the way they will relate to humanitarian action? That's another story. But I found interesting at least to observe that. Okay, one from the middle of the room over there, and then I know that, Charles, I've got to come to you. I think we've got about seven or eight minutes to work with. Thank you very much. Um, first, thank you, Eve, uh, very much for a fascinating discussion. Um, my name is Lachlan. I am a graduate student here at Oxford, and as you can tell by my accent, I am Australian. Um, so I'm one of the, the white Western men that you were talking about before. There are too many of us in the <laughs> sector. Um, I wanted to ask a bit of an amorphous sort of question, and I'd like your thoughts on it, and also given that there are so many people in the room who might be considering careers in uh, humanitarian organisations, hopefully it's useful to more than just me. Um, I have a background in uh, human rights um, with the Australian government, um, and when I was in Geneva a couple of years ago, I met a young man um, who had just returned. He worked for the ICRC and had just returned from about six months in Syria. And uh, in conversation with uh, me and he, he was saying, um, he was kind of questioning um, my motivations a little bit, I suppose, um, and saying to me that if, uh, if I didn't seek a career or at least a portion of my career out in the field to see what it was really like, um, then how could I claim to care about human rights? How could I claim um, to be, you know, uh, really invested? Um, I guess I, I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on that claim um, and, and whether choosing to not go out into the field, um, rather choosing to stay at Capitol or in a headquarters, um, does compromise the quality of work that somebody can deliver um, or the you know, kind of contribution that somebody can make. Great question. So I, I'm sorry to say that I fundamentally disagree with my former colleagues. Uh, well, let's formulate like that. Depends what you want to do. I think there is a lot. You can play an amaz amazingly powerful role from Oxford here in terms of human rights today. You can. And I'm amazed. And I think one thing about digitalization that is helping, I'm totally amazed about what's happening. And again, it's not perfect, but what's happening, what has happened in Syria, but also in Ukraine in terms of justice, for example. We know it will be difficult to have justice. But what's happened if you look at Germany applying universal justice in Karlsruhe last year, when they were judging one Syrian responsible of a camp, right, a prison, and they based not all, but a lot of judgments on, on, in fact, video and work that has been collected by people, and the people who collected that were not in Syria, right? So just to give a sense, so there is also a different way today to work on human rights. You don't have to be on the spot. So I would totally disagree with that element. Though, when you're working in an organization, that's slightly different, right? If you're working in an organization that has operation on the ground, then we're talking about some things. We're talking about you being part of the culture of the organization. You willing to influence the organization, right? Which is normal. And here, in some organization, you have to be in the field, 
not so much to meet the people, but to understand how the organization is assessing risk, how is the organization making priority. So what I'm saying is a different element. I'm not saying that about human rights. You can do human rights work amazingly from wherever you are, and specifically, right, I think there is a lot of work to be done right now in the Western world also, from the Western world, but also about the Western world. It's time also for us to think that we need not just to look at what's happening down there, but also what happens in our own country in terms of center and periphery. I'm deeply convinced. I think there is a lot of relationship around that also, for good, good reason. And at the same time, if it's about being in an organization that has a, an important, I would say, field footprint, that's slightly different. You don't have to be exposed to understand human rights and the issue, but you need to be exposed to understand the culture of the organization. And possibly, as I can look at you being willing to change the organization. You don't come in an organization without willing to change and at least to influence your own organization. So it's a two different response. Charles, we have some questions online. So uh, the question that has most folks online is from Helen Bowler. And it's got two parts. It's both to do with UK policy. I suspect Valerie might have a view on this as well. Um, we used to have enshrined in law that we would spend 0.7% of GDP on aid, and that went down to 0.55. And we used to have a separate um, Department for International Development, and, I do in, yeah. and we've merged the two. And just hearing an Australian accent, the Australian government did the same thing about five or six years. And Helen's question is, from the outside, what is your impression that those two changes have had on humanitarian um, activities on the ground? I don't know about Ukraine. I would find it difficult to judge. But what is very clear for me, and here I'm, I'm really on in, in personal opinion, if, if you connect that with this country, I found this country, uh, and this is not related to the 0.7%, it is not related to, sorry to say that, to the FCDO or DFID, it is related to the crisis in which this country is, has gone through related to the Brexit. Sorry to say that. I've seen this country losing completely its own ability to think uh, uh, and uh, take distance and being totally taken on by the Brexit. And I'm saying right, not right or wrong, but you've been so busy with the Brexit that I've not seen you being very strategic, in, including in terms of the way you operate with, towards Ukraine. So I look at the way this country is operating towards Ukraine more as a result of, if I may say, the Brexit and the aftermath of the Brexit much more than a result of having a DFID or FCDO and organization, just to give a sense, right? Now, point B, now if I want to be more specific, my experience, which is not related to UK, but it's related to, in fact, merging a department, uh, a specific department into one element, my, my tendency would say I found personally better to have two different voices, and I'm explaining why. Because, of course, when you represent as Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, the same times the development and humanitarian actors, you're not expected to talk about the development of humanitarian actors. You're talking about, you're expected to talk about the interests of your country at the highest level, which is normal. And that's what is problematic when you are in intense discussions within the cabinet. You don't wear two hats as a person. You, of course, are experiencing and pushing one agenda, which is perfectly understood. And, of course, the humanitarian agenda will not be on the table, or very rarely on the table, right? And that's what makes a difference. I'm aware, for example, in this country, but also in Australia and other places, that there were very tense discussions within the cabinet between, for example, the Minister of Foreign Affairs and the Minister of Development, for good reason, because we were talking about some issues. This will go. And I am of the opinion that it's always better to have different voices 
especially when you talk about situation as complex as a crisis, a conflict, it's better to have some elements. So that would be my experience, what I've experienced. Doesn't mean it's perfect at all, but at least it allows to have more considerate response and, and, and reflections around that. What was it that, uh, <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> you need a mic, you need, you need a mic. You need a mic. Thank you, I completely agree with that, but I would add two other things. Please. Um, I would add the fact that when you bring two government departments together, you just become focused on the internal organization of it. So we started to look much more inward than outward. And at a point when we were going through a national crisis um, uh, as a country, and you know, essentially we're trying to think about what is our, you know, what is our foreign policy? If you had had two separate departments, you could still have an outward-looking DFID, even if you had an internal-looking uh, foreign office. Um, and uh, my view is we lost that. And the second thing I would say is that, you know, we, lo we lost our thought leadership. We had such important thought leadership around these issues around development and humanitarian uh, issues, um, we were right up there in terms of our relationship across the world on that, and we completely lost that, and I think it's a great pity. And I think I would just drop a bit of history in there and remind ourselves that when Barbara Castle set up the Ministry for Overseas Development, it was partly there to make aid more than amateur charity, as she said at the time, but also to make sure that it wasn't an instrument of our foreign policy. Who's next? Over here, just in front. Uh, thank you, Eve. <laughs> Good to see you again see outside you. of Geneva. Um, just a quick question. I know that may be difficult to answer, but when we look at the grand bargain uh, and the commitments that both governments and international NGOs, uh, um, you know, agreed to, where do you think is the biggest resistance coming from? Because six years down the road, we don't really, we don't really see that the needle has moved uh, in any big way. Is it because the international NGOs are afraid to lose their power, or is it that the donors are afraid to fund? Um, it's a, it's a, I don't know if everybody's familiar with that. So there was, uh, what was it, 2016, right? There was a real conversation at the time with happens between the big donors, so the then government, and big, let's say, uh, kind of an ecosystem of big humanitarian organizations trying to find it, what was called a grand bargain. And the big thing was interesting, the name grand bargain was kind of because the idea was, oh, let's do a grand bargain that it will make it all collectively more efficient. So I think we can always have a discussions about really was it the case. We've lost it because we were not able, they were not able, we were not able to focus on one issue. And so there was too many issues. And then when you have too many issues, I mean, it's very well known. If you don't want anything to change, then change everything, right? So that is exactly what happened to the grand bargain. Be sure that nothing will happen. What has, for me, what I would have pushed, and I know it's difficult, I would have pushed really one findings if it came in Istanbul, which was the kind of the humanitarian summit, big discussion. And the, the, the idea was very interesting, was in fact only 2.5% of the overall money goes to local actors, right? I think what I found interesting is that it could have been easily done, target, and let's push in that direction. And I'm not saying everything would have been changed, but it would have obliged all the American actors. 
and the donors to start to change their behavior. Uh, it has not really been pushed uh, for different reasons. And then, of course, we are back to uh, let's have a collective KPI. I mean, and I can own or not. And I think that was, for me, maybe the, the places where you could have the most chance of success. Because, of course, when you suddenly decide that donors, government donors, will pay directly and finance directly local actors, it would have created a lot of questions about who is a good local actors, how do we qualify that, what does that mean in terms of accountability. But it would have been very useful into the model. Uh, it didn't happen, and we can have a long discussion why, and that's why now we are in somewhere which is, you know, with a lot of proposal, a lot of change, and it will have very li limited impact. Sadly, sadly. So one thing I've learned about the Oxford Martin School is that it, it aims for and achieves um, Swiss levels of efficiency and timekeeping, and I've been told that that means that we have to wrap up now. Um, two things just before we do. The first is to remind everybody that there is a drinks reception. Uh, you are all welcome to it. It will be back through the doors and just to the right. And then, of course, on all our behalf to thank Eve for spending um, time with us today. I think, Eve, if anything struck me about that wonderful talk, it was, yes, I think the honesty with which you faced up to the problems facing the international humanitarian sector, but just also how thoughtful and thought-provoking you were on the possibilities and the potential for change, and I think the latter is as important as the former. Thanks so much for giving us your time. Okay.